All right. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we are exploring the landscape of learning technology while cutting through the fluff to get the questions you need answered to build out your digital learning ecosystem. Today, I'm joined by my friend Mike Pino, and we are talking about the future of learning tech. So for those of you joining us live, give us a thumbs up, share the post, tag in somebody who'd benefit. I honestly cannot keep these things on right now. But you weren't expecting that one, right? My VR glasses. Did I surprise you? That totally surprised me. I was shocked. I, shocked. I, I, I wasn't going to tell you I had a trick up my sleeve for getting this one started. So figure it would be appropriate. Um, no. So before we get into it, right? So we're talking and we've been talking for a bit, Mike, and I'm, I'm glad we finally got to hit the go live button on this one. But, you know, we're talking about the future of learning tech and some of these immersive technologies. But before we get into it, we got to ask the question which is, what is your best SCAR story? So so let's hear it. I, you shared with me that there might be two, but you have to pick one. Mm, mm. I'm going to pick, uh, so I'll set the stage. Uh, it was the weekend of MLK weekend in 2009. Uh, this was also the inauguration of Obama weekend. And uh, that Sunday, I was uh, playing indoor soccer. And uh, I was very proud of myself. I was in my late 30s. And I'm not going to tell you how old I was because it's not really that important to the conversation. But uh, I was playing with a bunch of 18-year-old Brazilians. I was playing soccer with a bunch of 18-year-old Brazilians. And I was proud because I was fast. I was as fast as an 18-year-old Brazilian. I felt good, right? And all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> you know they, they kicked my foot. And... Uh, yeah, so I, I actually went through severe uh, ankle injury. The, the last thing I heard when the doctor was putting me under is he said, you're not allergic to anything. And I said, no. He said, you haven't had blood in your foot for nine minutes. If you wake up without a foot, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do the best I can to save it. So so that was sort of like, you know, I was, you know, the last thing I'm thinking about is, uh, you know, is my nickname going to be Peggy? You know, so I was just sort of, <laughs> <laughs> that was where, you know, it, so, so my scar story is really about, you know, graduating into middle age because okay. I went through about five and a half years of surgeries and such to actually, you know, get myself to a place where I can bicycle, but look, I still can't play still soccer relatively anymore. relatively normal? Yeah, you know, I mean, looks like I, a foot. I'm thinking about it. Looks like a foot. It looks like a foot. Good. It's attached to me. I'm attached to it, you know, but now I can actually feel weather patterns. So I'm, okay. I'm now a meteorologist. That's right. You did say you know, that. So. You're a meteorologist on the side now as a result of your surgery. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> well, for those, of you, for those of you watching, yeah, if you have a good scar story, share it. Share it in the comments. Mine's, mine's actually pretty funny. Um, it goes back to my college days. And ironically, I still have the culprit. Uh, that that caused this one. So I bought this. I bought this knife. Okay, randomly. I, I saw it at Target. I thought it was cool. Was driving in the back, riding in the back seat with my roommates. For whatever reason, I don't know why. I was playing around with it by my leg, and they hit the brakes, and I filleted open my quad. Right. I just. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Because I, I couldn't see it, but there was a lot of blood. And so I'm like holding my leg and we made a couple stops and I'm trying to hide the fact that there's a blood soaked tearaway pant, you know, <laughs> hanging, hanging down here. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. I don't want to go to the hospital or anything like that. So we go home and I go up, I go up to my room <laughs> and I take my new knife and I heat it up with a lighter and I and I cauterized the the wound, and then I super glue it shut. Now, in my wisdom back then, I should have just went and got stitches because now it looks like I had full blown surgery when really all I did was slice open my leg. So yeah, I, my left leg has a nice scar up on the top from pure foolishness. Honestly, just pure foolishness. <laughs> Well, the cauterizing, that's that's very clever, although it's a little bit extreme. I, they I don't, don't know call what me MacGyver about for that. nothing, Mike. That's, that's I didn't that's get very that. very impressive. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it hurt. It hurt. I will tell you that. If, it's, not a, it's not a good idea. I would not recommend it to anybody listening or watching. Go to the doctor. Wow. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good lesson. It was, yeah. I tell it to my children on a regular basis. <laughs> that's why I kept the knife. This <laughs> could happen to you. It could happen to you right here. All right. So let's get into it because there are a number of topics that we've talked about possibly digging into it, whether it's artificial intelligence and some of the implications behind that, 
whether this coronavirus and some of the implications that that may have on us as a workforce may play or some of the immersive technologies like my fancy headset um, back there. But where do you want to start? Where should we start unpacking this? Because I think we're going to have way more to talk about than we have time. Well, you know, the, the thing that I always find uh, astonishing is that, you know, we are still measuring um, learning in, in really kind of ridiculous ways. And even though we're getting much better at, at having uh, data points in all kinds of different places, I, I end up in conversations with people where they, you know, they sheepishly say, we're just going to measure Kirkpatrick level one. And I'm like, um, okay, why? And I, I, I find it to be one of those kinds of things where it's, I'm not sure whether this is a fear of, uh, uh, of admitting that some things don't work and maybe it's it's actually just fear of of failure if it's actually a fear of not actually ever do having done this before and and the fear of the unknown or if it's really just because people aren't aren't really savvy about it and if it's the third that fear of of uh not having awareness that that's the one that scares me the most it's <sighs> I think it's probably a bit of a combination of that. I, I completely agree that I think there is a little bit of uncertainty around some of these immersive technologies tell us a lot, a lot more than I think we really even know what to handle sometimes. And I think that's a little bit unnerving. And on top of it, I think it also <laughs> is a little bit of a look in the mirror to sometimes we don't know as much as we may think we know about stuff. Like we think, well, this is how it works or this is what we should do, or this is the impact of the work we're doing. And these new technologies and this new sets of data that we're getting are telling us sometimes the exact opposite of what we've thought for so long. So let's, let's dig into that one a little bit. I know we talked about about NLP and and that as a specific application of artificial intelligence, what are some of the things you know as you're as you're talking to people as you're learning about it? What are you finding with that that's exceptionally jumps out at you? So uh, you know the thing that I'm I'm actually seeing more of is um, uh, applications of NLP that are a lot more immediate. So you could do a lot of really interesting things right now with, with uh, lexical analysis, with textual analysis. You can, you can understand, you know, sentiment. So you can very quickly scan how people are feeling about things. And that's being used in, in a lot of digital marketing kinds of techniques and sort of how do you feel about the brand and stuff like that. But I, I think that, you know, that, that same sort of concept, well, you know, hey, uh, you you know, emotion is actually an important thing to think about. Um, and we're, we've learned an awful lot about uh, the neurobiology of learning. And that emotion is actually a critical component of firing synapses. There's a lot of things that we learned about emotion um, that certain types of emotion actually lead to a longer term kind of recall and a better sort of sense of how to actually apply or, or reuse this. And I, I just... I find it to be, why don't we just start by starting? You know, let's pick one. So if we start actually being able, let's do some basic sentiment analysis. And what we're going to do with it for the first time is we're just going to get a sense of how, you know, so we're going to do Kirkpatrick one, but we're not going to ask them to, to rate themselves about it. We're going to actually just use what they're talking about in the session. And we're going to do a, a sort of Kirkpatrick one based on that, you know, so what were their emotions during the session? How were they feeling? You know, it's interesting. You bring up the point of emotion and I, I actually have a session, one of these coming up in, I don't remember, a few weeks that we're talking about this a little more. I feel like emotion is something that goes vastly overlooked when it comes to the work that we do. We don't, you know, we're so focused on the knowledge piece or the behavioral change or the action, and we don't necessarily take into account what is the emotional impact or how are emotions and the way people are feeling affecting things? And what are we doing to make sure that people are feeling the right emotions? It's interesting that, you know, this is where NLP and artificial intelligence may be able to help us better unpack that. Because I think sometimes we've avoided it because we didn't really have a good way to assess it or know what to do with it, even if we could, you know, ask the right questions or anything like that. Well, even to take that one step further, imagine if you if we understood some of the emotions that prevent people from engaging on a topic, right? If they have, you know, if certain types of fear responses and we can measure that, 
uh, actually prevent them from paying attention to anything. And so you may as well not have them enter the classroom if they're having, if they're expressing those kinds of fear emotions, right? Whether it's facially or whether it's, and by the way, facial is not a great way to just measure emotion. Uh, some of the data that's coming out is showing us the exact opposite. But let's, if you mix facial with, you know, expression, how you're speaking, your tone, the word what you're exactly you're saying. Right. You start, exactly. Yeah, you start packing it together into a holistic equation. And then you sort of say, if they hit this sort of threshold, we, we actually should pull them out because it, it, it's a waste of time. It's not going to work. Well, the thing about it is one of the ways you talked about that in terms of, you know, if we started small, because I think some of these immersive technologies, sometimes where people are afraid to step into it is it feels like such a leap, right? It feels like such a leap to go from, well, we're just doing level one evaluations. You're asking us to do language analysis on yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well, okay, maybe not from here to here, but that idea of, well, let's change our level one evaluations to be more text-based, let's actually do some analysis on that text to see what was the emotional response, is a much more natural transition step, I think. Right, well, and so you can sort of say, ask them to say it, and then ask them, you know, the, the, real, the real challenge here is that basically no one wants to write anything because at a certain point, the real underlying problem, you and I have had this conversation for, for years now, uh, is, is trust. Right. Yes. And, and organizational trust is a, is a really tricky thing. And if, if the, the trust isn't there, a lot of stuff is not going to happen. No, it doesn't matter what you put into place, you know, what, right. Well, and I think that's, it's a little bit of a dicey area to start getting into when you start talking about any of these things. I mean, I even think of whether you're talking about AI, you know, whether you're talking about AR, whether you're talking about VR, we're able to capture a lot more data about people, what their performance is, what are they doing? How are they doing it? That can be very unnerving for people if, if that trust does not exist. Well, I, I'll give you a real example of something that I didn't think about and I feel actually kind of foolish about it. First time I started using the, the, the VR headsets, I didn't realize how women felt uh, incredibly uncomfortable when they were around other people and they had to wear the visual headsets because they, they felt like they couldn't actually be in control of their situation and it made them feel uncomfortable like physically uncomfortable. I didn't even think about that because I, I, I guess I'm a guy and I don't think about that. But these are the kinds of things that you just, you, you don't yeah. even actually put into, you know, and this is a sort of. So what brought that? I'm curious. I'm curious. We don't have to get into super specific, but what, what brought that to light? Because it is a very interesting point. I think as a, as a guy, you just don't worry about your environment. And yeah, I'll put these goggles on and pay no attention to what's around me. Cause Hey, why not? That's not a universal. Everyone feels that way. Well, we actually had a couple of cases where there was only one person in the room because we didn't have all the people show up. So there were, and, and all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, why is this so, why are these experiences so radically different? And we just thought to ask the question, like, so what was going on? I didn't feel really good about the fact that, you know, Johnny was over here and I, I just, you know, I, I know him, but I, I don't know him and I, I don't, you know, I don't feel comfortable. Interesting. And, and so, and, and this is the thing that goes back to that sort of level of trust. There's a, there's that, you know, I, I hate to equate the two. They're not equate. This is not, these are not equivocal kind of, these are not the same things, but they're, they're what I'm, I'm trying to draw a, a, attention to is, is the fact that if you don't think about trust as being the basis of any of this, you, you're kind of starting from, you know, a, a really bad position. Well, and you know, Serena, Serena's commenting in on here. The comments are, are going quite kind of crazy here. And she brings that up, right? We have to, we have to start before just throwing some of these new tech at people. We have to start with some of these foundational things like organizational trust. Because again, if if our employees do not trust us with the data or what we're going to do with that data, we're never going to get anywhere with it. It's it's simply an exercise of, you know, how how it's just going to die on the vine. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of like uh, a lot of people 
you know, what really took a long time for uh, digital marketers to really understand back in the late 90s, early 2000s, is the whole idea of opt-in marketing versus opt-out marketing. And really, you know, giving that person, so you have to actually start from the position, what are you going to do with this? Why are you doing it? You had to be very clear, very transparent about how exactly you were doing it. You had to make it something that people could look up and feel that they could actually do. And if they wanted to, that they could remove themselves from from that kind of work. That didn't start to happen until the Can Spam Act of like 2002 really started to change that. But it, it was one of these things that a lot of people in marketing really didn't understand that this is you know, that, that, that kind of shift to opt, to opt in. And I, I think that we're going through the same thing now in learning. We, we don't start yeah. from this sort of sense of let's opt. In. How do you actually get people to opt into this? And, and what's the right way to do that? Well, and that goes back to a conversation I've had multiple times on this whole L&D needs to operate more like marketing. And I feel like so often it's taken out of context and people go, right, we need to have better positioning messages and better branding. And it's like, that's not I mean, maybe that's part, but that's not really what we're getting at when we say we need to think more like marketing. It's more about these things. And that's before we came live or go ahead. What were you going to add to that? I was just going to say, you know, it's about being data driven. It's about actually respecting people's privacy. It's about different kinds of ways of thinking about how people engage with each other and, and what you're trying to do with that engagement. What are you trying to actually accomplish with it? I think that these are kinds of things that marketing has learned over 15 years of mistakes. And I don't think that we've actually learned that yet in in learning. No. And I think we have an opportunity to learn from that journey versus making the same mistakes along the way and say, Hey, this is, this is what marketing learned from that. And I think other, I think other functions are, have gone through that as well. I I would say we're a bit behind the curve compared to other functions, but um, that's, that's a topic for another conversation, but this goes back to, you know, going back to how, what we can do about it in organizations. To me, one of the critical things is storytelling. You know, I look at our ability to tell compelling stories as critical to building that trust because if people don't understand what this data is, how are we using it? The way you break that down is by, well, one, telling the story. And if you're not, how are you getting that message out? You're, you're right. And, and a lot of times with storytelling, uh, we th- we tend to focus on the wrong things. I think I think that we think about just the, the the narrative arc itself, but we don't think about the actual actors and the struggles. And there's a lot more to story than just the the narrative arc. I mean, if all it were was the freelance t- the triangle, you know, the starting point, the rising action, the falling action, the denouement kind of thing. Yeah, okay, but that you know story is a lot more than that. There's a lot of actual detail that sometimes people think is irrelevant, but really that detail is is where the meaning, the wisdom that we actually encode into story comes out is, is through that, that mixture of detail in the actual rising and falling action. Well, and as we go into the whole, because we've talked about the fact, and I, and I don't think anybody would disagree, that trust is such a key component of this. And I think there's a lot of elements and things that organizations can do to tackle that. But as you get into it and you start unlocking the potential of it, to me, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating the things that potentially we would be able to do once we can over, overcome those barriers. You know, we talk about some of the challenges that we have in organizations, whether it's whether it's reskilling, whether it's employee engagement, whether it's, you know, some of these other big topics. And it's in many cases, largely because we don't understand what's really going on. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to approach it from a enterprise lens. Let's, let's just do what's good for everyone and hope it works. But the technology, and I get why we haven't done it. I get why we haven't. The time it takes to to try and dive in and analyze all that data can be insane. But that's where, to me, AI has tremendous. That's exactly right. It You're can, exactly it's right. It's the speed and scale that we just physically can't. But you have to start from the position that, you know, I'm going to use this for good, not evil. And I'm yeah. using this to try to understand these kinds of questions. And, and sometimes you have to be willing to sort of say, you know what, I'm not sure why that just happened. So like in my case where I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, actually putting someone in, in glasses that sort of, you know, might make them feel uncomfortable and I didn't think about that, and, but the once I actually saw it, I, you, you can't unsee that once you once you know that. But that's the sort of 
the kind of sophistication that comes out of, I guess, you know, the, you know, that, I, I think the thing, what, what's really important about that story, about the, the, D, the, the, uh, the VR glasses for me, isn't necessarily the learning about being locked in. It's, it's about the importance of actually connecting other people into the conversation and being able to ask them, well, what do you think that would be? Why do you think that would be that way? What, what are some of the reasons why people would operate differently? And that sort of hypothesis kind of making and being able to test that hypothesis is, is really kind of missing in a lot yeah. of organizations, you know? So, so what did, why, why did that happen? What do, what do we think is here? And I, I think the thing that actually pointed out to me is that I didn't have a lot. I, I, was, I was in a small tech shop and we had three guys. So we didn't think about that because we didn't have people that we could bounce ideas off of. And, and this is where I think that a lot of the people get the wrong ideas about diversity and inclusion. It's really important to, especially when you're thinking about applying technology, you have to actually think about how is this going to change the experience? Is the experience going to be the same? Are there things that you have to think about before you even start? Are, are there things that, you know what, this, this may be a gotcha here. Let's test that out to make sure we're not going to walk into something that won't work. Well, and that all goes into, right, th these are all steps in telling a great story, right? I mean, this is, this is what we're getting back to. And one of the comments our good friend Kevin Yates asked, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this one out to you. You know, Mike, how do you define storytelling? What, is, what does that mean to you? Huh. Wow. Thanks, Kevin. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you back. <laughs> Just wait till uh, you're on next time, Kevin. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I actually think of storytelling as, um, taking the, uh, the, the meaning, the, the, you know, defining meaning, um, through an action that you actually strip away irrelevant and extraneous detail and keep only what's necessary to actually convey that meaning and that wisdom. Uh, it's probably not the, the way that you know, someone with a PhD in English would actually say it, but that's how I actually think about storytelling. Okay. Well, and I think for, for one of the things I would add to that with storytelling is the transparency behind it, right? The authenticity mm -hmm. of really what are those, those human elements that go into it? Because that's what really makes people connect to it. Because I don't think people, and I've seen this over the years, people don't connect with the corporate -y, you know, kind of high-level stories that don't really tell the details of what's really going on. And to me, that's where storytelling can go from, this was an okay story to that was a great story that drove change. Well, in, in fact, actually, a lot of corporate storytelling cuts out probably the most important parts of it, which are some of the places where things went wrong or where you had challenges or that were real obstacles that you had to overcome. And it's because in a lot of corporate cases, we don't like to talk about, we don't like to expose our vulnerabilities, right? None of us do. And I, I think the thing that, that may have worked in, a, in an earlier era, but we're, the more that we're operating in a place where we have to be able to move backwards and forwards between uh, cooperation and, and um, coordination and, and, and then collaboration, and these are three separate types of activities that you would do. You need to be able to actually have a different sense of trust, a different sense of reciprocity, and a different sense of understanding where you are in, in a group. And I, I think in some ways that's, that's been one of these areas that's kind of problematic is that the, the way that we like to actually corporatize things removes the stuff that actually encourages that sort of trust or that understanding of okay, you struggled too. You had this problem. I get it. I've, I, I haven't had that, but I can understand where that that's coming from. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a, it's a big step, right? That vulnerability and that humility is a big step in building the trust needed to use some of these new technologies. So people may understand we don't necessarily know a hundred percent of what we're doing with this right now. We don't have all the answers yet. This is what we do know. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And we will keep you updated along the way, you know, and included in that. So that people know that you don't have all the answers because when you say that, that's where people go, really? I don't, I don't know that I believe that. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, and just to sort of, I, I, I just want to actually shout back out to Kevin. 
Kevin, I've actually done 25 minutes and I haven't actually raised one, not one technical uh, thing whatsoever. We've been talking about culture. We've been talking about human. That's a lot. Of t and that's kind of an interesting kind of place for me to be. 25 minutes talking about the future of, of learning with technology and actually focusing on human issues. Well, because if anything, what I've found, right, I'm the, the, into tech and all this good stuff, but that's, that's always the after piece, right? That's always the afterpiece. And I think where tech goes wrong is when we lead with that. You lead with yep. that, you miss, you miss all these other things that actually are what make it successful, which is why 80 plus percent of digital transformations fail, because it's starting with the tech, not taking into account all these other things that will actually allow the tech to take off where it needs to. Or, or to choose the right tech that actually supports the right experiences that fits into the, the, the different kinds of subcultures that you have because there's not one culture inside yeah. any organization there's tons of subcultures and you have to actually find ways to enable all of that kind of conversation so with this one i, I want to unpack the the ai piece a little bit further because one of the things that i've found that people don't always think about or understand is that and when it comes to machine learning it's only as good as the data set it's operating off of so we have biased or corrupt or incomplete data, throwing machine learning at it is not going to solve a problem for you. It, other than it may actually expose to you, wow, holy cow, look how you know broken our data is. What, what's your take or how can you on this journey start with that? Because that can really hold people back. And I think it's one of the why human in the loop is one of the most important things when it comes to machine learning, because if you just throw it and say, yep, well, the machine told us this, that's where you hear stories like the Twitter bot, right? That just go very south very quickly because you're trusting too much. Well, and, and that, that's the hard thing. I mean, look, when it comes down to it, um, a system that's based on incomplete or, you know, incomplete or incoherent assumptions is going to, is going to fail no matter what. It doesn't matter how, how great, you know, if it's uh, perfectly constructed, cat catastrophically wrong, it's going to be catastrophically wrong. And so I, I think that the challenge is, is that it's really hard to see gaps in data. And it really requires you to think entirely differently. And I, I don't think that we're really well trained on, on what that what does that mean to actually see gaps? or to be able to identify where some of these places are. How, how do you know when to ask the kinds of questions of, have we actually considered X or have we considered Y? And I, I think that the thing that's been really, that I've become more, in, in, as I've gotten older, that I've become more and more aware of is not that the, the data is incomplete, but that the questions that we're asking are not precise. And so the way that we're asking questions is sort of going to steer us in a way that's going to get us an answer that we may not have expected or wanted. And I, I think that understanding how to ask a better question is sometimes the first step in this. And, and in fact, I don't think that many of us actually have played the 20 questions game, unless with our children uh, in some time. But understanding how to actually use questions to lead to better outcomes is a really tricky kind of thing that you don't get a lot of practice with. That's true. It's, it's a fair point. And I think that's definitely an opportunity area as we move into this space. Um, you know, from a, from a, I just, I just saw your t-shirt. Uh, that must be from your wife. Uh, for <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, huh? Hey, Valentine's Day does not have to stop on Valentine's Day. So, yes, that is, right. And in the spirit of right, somebody commented, vulnerability is so important. There it is, right? So being open and honest. Um, yeah, that, that, it was a gift. It was a gift on Valentine's Day a while back, but I actually have multiples. So she doesn't, uh -huh. she doesn't want it to wear out. So. <laughs> Well, congratulations. Yes. Mazel tov. <laughs> um, so on this one, you know, one of the things I talked about in the post leading up to it was the practical applications of this stuff. And I think you you hit on one earlier that I, to me, is is really impressive is, you know, even on this level one stuff is trying to better figure out the emotional state of people 
you know, when it comes to training so that or learning or whatever buzzword you want to use with it. So we know whether they're even a position to do it. You know, some of the other ones is when I think of NLP and, and really voice analysis, especially, I feel like that's one that we have vastly underutilized when I look at its capability and being able to, you know, capture a voice print from someone or, you know, even in a, in a room, be able to listen to a conversation and be able to give people actionable feedback on the way meeting dynamics are going. You know, to me, that is something that has massive potential. We've got a ways to go. You know, people start walking into a meeting room and see Alexa sitting there and they know that Alexa's listening to the whole meeting, right? There's, there's those trust things that we need to build. But to me, I look at that and go, how practical is that to be able to get meaningful feedback on the way work is actually happening and be able to do something about that and have that awareness we may not have had? Well, I'll take that even one step further. I mean, could you imagine trying to sell to someone and being able to get immediate feedback on their emotional responses to what you're saying, how you're saying it, and and what things are connecting and what things aren't, and how to actually change the message that you're actually bringing into a conversation based upon that kind of feedback? Um, Theoretically, we have some of that technology already in place, but there's a whole lot of creep factor that you have to work through before you even get there, right? You know, it's funny. I, <laughs> yeah, Alexander's talking about sentiment analysis. Yeah, it, it reminds me, I saw it. I don't remember where I saw it, but the creep factor is a real one. And I remember it was years ago. I saw this video, right? Where a guy's wearing, a guy's wearing these like AR glasses and he's on a date and the AR is telling him based on the response, how he's, and he's changing all his questions. And in the end, she just leaves him, right? She's, she's creeped out by it because that creep factor of, how much of this is the real person and how much of this is just manipulation in some ways of, of data that I may not even be aware of as the person on the other end of that. Yeah. I came across a, a term I never heard of the other day, um, a speed gaming or something like that. I, I have to look it up. I, I, I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards, but it's, it's this, this whole thing about actually uh, understanding how to connect with people in, in situations. And on one level, it's actually, you know, okay. So you're trying to give, you know, people confidence and being able to talk to others, but then in another, you're actually teaching people to be inauthentic, right? You're not actually speaking from the heart. You're not actually exposing your own vulnerabilities and, and, and in some ways, it's it's a really interesting um, challenge because it's going to force this kind of conversation about where where does uh, connection begin and end? Where where is authenticity authenticity actually belong right. in this? We can augment your performance, but if that's inauthentic, is that w- what matters more in this kind of situation? It's a, it's a fine line, right? It becomes a slippery slope of. You know, yeah. And then that leads to to bigger issues in terms of that authenticity and the trust, because now people start questioning, is this authentic, you know, is what I'm experiencing even, even authentic anymore? I mean, this is where this kind of stuff has tremendous potential. I, Alexander <laughs> comments, he's like, right, we're enabling Skynet to take us out. And to some degree, that's kind of the apocalyptic approach you can take to this, where you can go, I mean, it could go that the potential for it to go that way is, I guess, there in theory. But to me, I look at it as that's where the ethics behind all of this is so important, you know, as we as we start exploring in this space. Well, I, I think that, you know, the, the good news is in all of this is that we can't, you know, machines really don't like um, ambiguity. And human language, which is an expression of human culture, and we have seven, roughly 7,000 extant active languages, really, uh, that, are, that are pretty active uh, globally. And they all show a tremendous degree of ambiguity. I mean, it, in fact, actually, some of the best marketing uh, approaches are, are meant to actually be ambiguous, that you're not really sure how you're supposed to read the message, even though it seems very simple. It's actually something that makes you, is, is he saying this or is he saying that? Is she saying this or is she saying that? I'll give you an example. Let's make smoking history is an example of a thing known as a, an amphiboly. An amphiboly is just basically something that is a deliberate ambiguity. So let's make smoking history. That means let's actually get rid of smoking, right? Or does it mean let's smoke so much <laughs> that we make history? 
Now, those are two different ideas, but the, the same sentence conveys two drastically different ideas, and machines can't deal with that. Right. So, let's long as grandpa, we are, let's eat grandpa. I mean, the, the, I, yeah, <laughs> that comma is a really big that problem. comma <laughs> saved life right there. That <laughs> comma is saving life. <laughs> Exactly. So, I mean, and, and in some ways, this is the kind of thing that a machine wouldn't be able to be sensitive to, but a, a sensitive human, and not all humans are sensitive. So we should also, you know, there, there are some of us that may not actually be able to, to process this or have different ways of approaching the world. But that, that sort of sensitivity, that, that ear for that, that kind of incongruity uh, can be funny. At the same time, it could also help you actually think about where is this not connecting with people? So, I guess this all turns around and to say, yeah, we could actually open this up to Skynet, but I'm not really worried about that just yet. As long as machines can't really actually, machines are writing poetry and that's kind of scary. Uh, the, you know, the machine that cracked the, uh, uh, that cracked the Zodiac killer uh, started writing poetry. And it was one of the kinds of things now they, they opened it up and they open sourced it. So you can actually have it write poems for you. And it's very kind of creepy, but this is the machine that actually understood, you know, what is really kind of out there, uh, anti-social uh, sociopathic behavior, uh, is now turning around and expressing itself using, using techniques that are, are, that are meant to actually have this kind of power, a uh, frisson of language. It's, it's an interesting time, but I, I, I'm not worried about Skynet just yet. The minute <laughs> that it's able to really do a lot more of yeah, this that, that well, we can't and, tell. And honestly, over the years, even if you watch, I don't remember the name of the, the computer, right? The, the best chess computer out there, they, they're finding even with chess that human augmented machine learning is still 10 times it's it's exponentially better because the uniqueness that is human combined with the power the speed and the scale of the machines mm -hmm. to date has only proven to be superior to anything that any machine by itself can do can an, can a machine potentially find patterns or move things faster than a human yes for sure but that and, and as quantum as quantum computing becomes more available that you can actually throw this kind of learning faster and faster and quicker and quicker i i think that you're going to find that kind of responsiveness that difference will change over time quantum computing is not very common and it's yeah. it's very rarely used in in corporate settings it's starting to come into corporate but it's expensive still yeah that will change but that will actually start to have one of those kinds of you know that kind of impact well and one of the comments serena made and and I, it's a good one an actionable resource i think l and d can take is you know she she jokingly kind of smiles and says you know make friends with your people analytics people but i think that's a we, we talked earlier about the better integration of learning and talent and learning and people analytics and i completely agree with that this is who we should be making friends with because really we're all trying to solve the same problems and to better understand what types of data points do we have how do we work together and put our collective heads together to actually solve real problems for our organizations and keeping the problem at the forefront versus the tech or the data or you know what comes out of that and saying, how do we actually solve for this X, Y, Z? Let's put the best people in the room together to solve for that. And, and I take that one step further. People analytics is really good and it sits kind of in between workforce planning, which actually talks a lot more to the finance folks and looking at, at the investments that you make over time and the the really the kind of very focused on the individual kind of l and d space, and I think the more that you can actually make the the kind of workforce planning uh, and the, the the learning strategy kind of operate together in the same kind of cycle time where you can inform business strategy, I think companies will listen a lot more and so I, I think those three groups have to learn how to talk better together. Well, because otherwise what's happening is, right, the rest of the organization is getting hit from these three different groups saying similar type stories, but with their own unique spin. And it feels like, okay, you want this, you want this, you want that. When in reality, we're saying the same things, we're just saying it differently. And I think that's a huge opportunity area, regardless of where you sit in L&D. And, and that's not really adding new tech, it's adding new context to tech, yes. right? So it's really about taking the work that the three different and disparate groups start to bring stories back to business leaders and, and really and, and combine the stories in a certain sort of way. So this actually does circle back to storytelling, 
But now it's like, what, what, what story are we trying to help our, our company answer? Yeah. Should, we, should we build, should we buy, or should we borrow this talent? What's the right answer here? Well, it's going to take you this amount of time to develop it, but the long-term benefit is this, the short-term benefit is this, and here's what you can count on based on what we know right now. Yep. Being able to deliver that, I, 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 can, I, can, I would imagine there'd be very few business leaders that wouldn't appreciate that, especially in a timely fashion. Well, and that's where what we can bring to the table is helping decrypt what that really takes because there is a misunderstanding of what it takes to reskill. And I know you and I have had this conversation multiple times that truly reskilling a percentage of your population is a massive on undertaking not yeah. something that is not something you roll out you know some e-learning and, and a few you know executive videos and go ta-da we got everybody up to it doesn't work like that and so having our input on that to say this is what it would actually take to upskill x population on on this you know global scale that's something that we do have a key role in helping you know decrypt and and, and to tell you the truth upskilling and reskilling you should never try to do any more than 5% to 7% is the rule of thumb. If you try to do more than that in any one year's time, you're, you're wasting your energy and your money. You're not going to get anything out of it. Yeah. But I, I think part of the problem is also a language problem on this too. We, we confuse certain things as upskilling when I, I like to call it acknowledging. I know. And, it's a buzzword you started and I've used it a I, few times. So, <laughs> it, But it's important. It is. The, the, it the, is. The, the concept is really about how do you actually have the same understanding yeah. across a broader group of people. So I don't need to be able to program, you know, uh, a, a bot to be able to execute this repeated task. I just need to know how to ask someone to program that for me and understand what yeah. the value is and where the shortcomings are of doing that. So this is going to take about six weeks to build. Well, I only need it once. I'm only going to use it once a year. So it doesn't make sense for me to do that. That's not really a good bot. That's, you know, we're, we're now, we're now solving a Rube Goldberg kind of situation here. And I think that the more that you're able to have that kind of translation between groups, and that's why you up knowledge broadly and you yeah. upskill narrowly. Yep. Yep. And it, it goes back to that education versus actual performance, right? Sometimes it's people, you, you need your organization to know things, but not everybody needs to be able to action against that. Exactly. So let's talk about this other one, because the other topic we were talking about before we got into this was one I think is is a very important one that the coronavirus has brought to light. Um, and so I'll let, I'll let you kick this off, but I think the implications of what we've learned from that on what it means to be a distributed workforce and our remote capabilities and infrastructure is, is massive. Yeah. I mean, really, if you, if you, you know, look, this isn't the first time that we've had, um, a sort of concern about an epidemic of a kind and, and we've had much worse epidemics. And, and right now, the coronavirus is nowhere near as uh, potent as H1N1, which is the common flu. Yep. But the common flu is killing 10 times more people. And, and it, it, it's the kind of thing that we don't think much about uh, because it's, it's not something that came from nowhere. We, we've been dealing with this for some time. And, you know, we, we, we're so far away, uh, generations away from from uh, the Spanish flu, and uh, 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 where we lost about a what was it like ten percent of the entire global population in nineteen nineteen, uh, just wiped out from a flu. But that's the kind of thing that's actually out there. The epidemics are are there, and and this is going to be a, a feature of of, the, of our connected ecosystem. What I find to be really kind of interesting about this is if you told a company, any company right now, that you would have to shut down office A, B, and C, <laughs> and all those people would have to work remotely, I wonder how quickly uh, the VPNs would crash. I wonder how quickly you wouldn't have, it would take you three times as long to do collaboration because the tools aren't actually set up properly, yep. where you're going to have people that are trying to make phone calls. They're not able to get in touch with each other because the the phone directory is out of date. Think this isn't up to date. You know, there's so many, uh, you know, kinds of things that are just sort of like basic kind of hygiene yep. that we haven't even required because it's just been like, well, we don't, we don't operate like that. We don't have to worry about that. And I think that this is the kind of, you know, the kind of incident that reminds us that, you know, Hey, 
if if you actually needed to, I'll give a even a more interesting example. The coronavirus there were uh, you know happened over Chinese New Year, and there were there were supposed to be two movies that were you know spent millions of dollars uh, producing these movies, and they were supposed to be released at the very time that the coronavirus hit. So now all of a sudden you have all of this money that's going to disappear because no one's going to go to the theater. No one's going to be watching this. So what do you do? And what was really interesting about uh, these two movies is that the they were able to renegotiate their terms, their distribution terms with all the theaters, and they were able to go straight to streaming and somehow actually transmit money to different groups and, and find a way to operate differently. Now, that kind of agile response to a distribution of a product, it's an exception, and you don't see it very frequently. And it's, it's something that when you look at it, you say, wow, I wish we could do that. Could you imagine if, if we had to do this? And I, I think that what it really highlights is that you know, we're not ready to actually be able to switch on remote work and do it immediately. And there's a lot of things that we're missing. Yeah. Well, and that whole movement, right? And this, again, goes to some of these, it goes to everything we've been talking about so far, which is some of this really cool futuristic stuff that's possible today. It technically is possible today. We're not ready for it yet. You know, we aren't ready to do it successfully and we've got some work to do. And I think this remote work is one that it is an important topic, uh, not just for a lot of the reasons you hear now, which is engagement. It's like the number one thing people ask for as a benefit. Things like you know, they'd be willing to take a pay cut, not that that's what you should do with it. But like that's how important it is. And yet organizations are are holding tight to that because they're not ready. And I think that may be the conversation that sometimes they're not really willing to admit is that, well, part of the holdup is we don't have the trust in our people. We don't have the infrastructure to support it. And, and as a result, you know, we're struggling with that, even though we know we need to get there. Or there's even more than that. It's like, we don't know that our people actually know how to operate uh, in meetings remotely, how to actually make small talk, why small talk is important when you're a remote worker, how to do that in a meaningful way without wasting people's time. What, what's actually considered a good way of doing that and connecting with people and what's considered a bad way of doing that? And what's the way that works best for this team? These are things that people have to work out together. Yes. And we're not there. I mean, I, I can tell you for a fact, I, I, you know, what I have on my phone is I have now multiple ways that people can get in touch with me, whether it's an SMS, uh, whether it's one of the various uh, technologies that people use, uh, WhatsApp or any of these other kinds of tools where they can communicate to me. And then there's the email that everyone hates. I, I woke I up to 415. <laughs> well, the two-way beeper. I, I didn't even know that that still existed. But hey, it could. <laughs> it does. They still exist. <laughs> okay. I, I did. Well, actually, you're right. You know, that'd be kind of interesting. Anyway, um, you know, the, the, the point of this is that all it does is it makes people feel uh, fatigued and less inclined to engage with others. Yeah. When in fact, what this is supposed to do is encourage the kind of behavior that you're looking for, which is collaboration, cooperation, uh, and, and coordination, right? In different ways and why you're actually trying to do it. And what you're actually doing is you're just creating fatigue and people saying, I can't, it's too yeah. much. I'm done. I'm going to well, just. We could, we could implement Angela's suggestion and have a remote work fire drill, right? You just, you know, corporate enterprise wide. We just say this day, we just, everybody has to shut down and work remotely for a day. We'll just see what happens if it just implodes the business. <laughs> well, I, I mean, maybe, maybe this is the kind of drill that actually companies need to do periodically and see how people are ready. And, and maybe that's a place to start applying some of these actual measurements is to see how well did collaboration work. Yep. Did you actually see some of the, uh, so using social network analysis on that day and seeing how well people were connecting, coordinating in that day? Uh, what, what Did it seem like it was actually moving any better? And then re- reporting that kind of information back and saying, look, we're not ready for this, but we want to be. And, and so thank you for taking part in our fire drill. Yeah. I mean, we're going to do it again. If you think about it, this is something that, um, you know, I have, a, I have a good friend. He's a he's a, a pen tester, right, in a, in a hacking firm. And that's the exact thing they do, right? It's It's you put these things to the test, you learn from it, you expose your vulnerabilities so that when something actually happens and you need to do it, you're ready for it. And I, to me, that 
if you look at the practical implication, right, one of the things we were talking about was the practical implications of this. Maybe you can't influence that on an enterprise level, but I do think at an L&D level in the work that we do, that is something practically that we can implement because how often are there times where, right, budgets get cut or something happens and we go, we, we just shut down because the way we've been operating can't operate in this in this type of mode. And if we were to know what that is, we'd be able to better prepare for it and say, okay, maybe going VR AI out the gate isn't our first step, but holy moly, when we ran this fire drill, we realized we're dead in the water if we don't move pretty quick. Or, you know, we'll, we'll switch gears and just sort of say, okay, so winter snowstorms and your face-to-face training, right? Yeah. Oh, oops, you can't get people there because the planes aren't actually able to get there. Uh, you know, so what happens? And this has been happening. We just don't, we have the data even to look it up, see right. how many people were disrupted by this. What did it really cost us to do that? But we have to ask that question first. And the, that doesn't take anything more. We already have the butts and seats data. We just haven't bothered to look at it. Well, and I think it's a good going back to making business cases for some of this transformational work. It highlights some of that data. I can't count how many times over my career where some of the biggest innovations I've been able to fund or get support for came from that kind of data where you said, hey, we we realized this or this happened and we learned from this. And therefore, we have a plan to be able to say this is how we think we can get around that. So this never happens again. Doesn't mean we're going to change everything. We're going to change our whole operation out of the gate. But it means this is the steps we're taking to be prepared to make that transformation. And it comes back to vulnerability and trust now, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Because, because you wouldn't have actually done that if you actually didn't feel that you could trust that person for exposing that vulnerability in, in your own actions and behaviors. You know, what's interesting, though, about this is that, you know, frequently, frequently, I've seen this where, you know, a lot of times people are afraid to be vulnerable and honest and open about things, thinking that the the worst is going to happen, right? If I'm open, I'm honest and transparent, bad things are going to happen. In my experience, it can. I won't say it never does. There's always that risk, but I've found more times out of anything, it's the opposite, right? When you're honest and open and vulnerable, that's that's not what happens. It's It's actually quite the opposite. You get some very special conversations. I've actually made really strong relationships with people by asking almost unexpected kinds of questions, but questions that basically exposed, well, maybe I don't know the answer, so I'm going to ask this question because I'm not really sure. Right. And by just, you know, sort of framing it like that and sort of saying, I, I'm not really sure. Can you help me understand how this is supposed to be understood? You know, that framing where you basically are like, I... I I am not sure, and I, I really need you to help me. That kind of, it changes the way people feel about each other in some ways. Well, and I, I don't remember who it was I was talking to the other day about this, but we were talking about, you know, getting, oh, it was with Jordan on Friday. We were talking about getting the seat at the table. I hate that term, but right, it's something that comes up in L&D all the time, getting a seat at the table. And how frequently do we attempt to get at the seat at the table by touting how much we know about their business and how much we can fix if we just did this or we did that, which we we talked about, you know, we're talking about trust and vulnerability, respect it right there is completely destroyed when you march in and say, I'm the expert in this. This is what I, and and it actually causes a polarizing effect. Well, it's, it's a really funny thing about that is, is that when you, when you actually talk to people, you may be an expert, um, but some of the ways that you you show your expertise aren't aren't by actually beating them up verbally. Right. Um, it, you know, in some ways, it's about asking a really well placed question. A single question can actually open up an entire conversation, and it doesn't have to be about I'm the smartest person in the room. It's about actually how do I how do I keep this conversation going productively toward this end. And being able to actually think about that means that you actually have thought about where do you want, where do you want this conversation to lead toward? What questions might actually open that up? It might never get there, but the fact that you're actually trying to engage with someone, not sort of, I'm going to wait until it's my turn to speak and I'm going to say what I need to say, and then I'm going to wait until I get my chance again, but really trying to engage and co-create. This is a really 
hard thing to do, but it's a really powerful thing when, when you're able to do it. You know, what's funny about this entire conversation, and by the way, the comment, like the comments are going crazy. So I'm trying to keep tabs on them. But you know, the thing that's crazy about it is what I've found is that no matter how many of these super deep technical conversations that I have with people, or when I start exploring some of the most, you know, cutting edge stuff, it always comes back to this foundational timeless stuff every single time, right? When you're really doing it right, it always comes back to these things like trust, like vulnerability, like business partnerships, like operations and all this stuff that are core foundational things that if you don't have those right, all the tech in the world, it's it, gonna fix it. it doesn't do anything. If anything, it causes more problems because you, instead of you know solving problems, it just is breaking things all over the place. And all you're doing is chasing it around. And now you've spent a whole bunch of money and set a whole lot of bad expectations. And you're trying to, to trying to back back up from that. You know, maybe we should record songs or something like that. You know, more tech, more problems kind of thing. It'd be kind of funny. <laughs> okay, I'm all about being vulnerable and transparent. So I will tell you right now, that is not my thing. I will not be very good at that one. I, I think well, that would I, be a level of vulnerability I would not be willing to put myself out there on. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I, I'll tell you three things that I do to make the world a better place. The first is I, I don't dance with anyone but my wife. And it's not, it's not because I actually, you know, uh, it, it's because... I'm, I'm such a bad dancer. I, I don't want to do it to anyone else, right? So <laughs> that's the first. The second is I don't sing in public. This is also a way I make the world a better place. So I, I won't do that. And the the third is I, I I don't I don't give unsolicited dating advice to anyone. Um, so <laughs> these are the three things that I've decided. We got a lot of comments of them were related to that. So I think we're good. I think we're good. Uh, I'll just call you Mac P or something from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Next album. <laughs> that is no, in, all, in all seriousness, though, uh, you know, the, the real thing, as you rightly point out, is it, it's really about understanding where, where things exist and, and how you can, you can connect them together, understanding where you really are, and, and being able to, to sort of say, you know what, this is where we're trying to get to. This is what I think is going to help us move that that way, and and sort of say this is what we're going to do about it. This is how we're going to test our, our our hypotheses and what we're going to do about it. I think that the more that we operate in this VUCA world, the more that we have to actually operate in in a world that's not it's not deductive or inductive reasoning. It's abductive reasoning. It's about actually coming up with hypotheses that you're testing all the time to yeah. move forward. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think it's about taking smaller steps. I, I think sometimes we're so pushed to jump from zero to a hundred and we don't need to, you know, I think that's where sometimes on the, the higher tech side of things, we, we maybe put some unneeded pressure to say, Oh, everybody should be here. And they, they're not, we need to meet people. The greatest successes I've had over the years is when I've met people where they are and then step them forward. Instead of saying, oh, you're there, well, you really should be here. I'm gonna kind of beat you over the head with a stick to try and motivate you to get to here because it doesn't work and it doesn't stick. Yeah, what well, you know, if you're gonna take a carrot and beat someone over the head with it, that's not really, you know, a motivation, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll I totally agree with you. a great scar story if I try and do that. <laughs> Super glue won't fix that one. No, I, I don't think so. You can't cauterize that. That you know the you know vitamin A uh, injury is a very dangerous thing. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I look at it and and I feel like I'm excited to see where some of these things go. I have I have an optimistic viewpoint of you know as long as the right people are in the right place and we're we're keeping humans in the loop and thinking collectively about this, I'm excited about it and I've embraced you know even I look at something as simple as Outlook now telling me you forgot to attach your attachment before you send an email. It's a simple advancement to these tools that makes my life easier. And I think some of these more immersive and, and bigger steps are going to only make our lives easier so we can focus on the higher level work. Right. Well, and, and I think that that's an incredible way. And these are the kinds of small steps. Can you imagine if, if learning and development, we actually were able to do that kind of, hey, you're just about to actually do this. Do you want to take a look at this before you execute? 
Uh, could you imagine actually being in that kind of place where what you're doing is you're, you're helping someone perform better at point of need? Uh, I, I, in some ways, I, I think that there are a lot of things that we can do that already exist. And, and in some ways, the, the new role of L&D is not to be the creator or the producer of this, but it's, it's really to encourage the producer-consumer kind of environment. So how do you actually help the producers and consumers be, be in, in cycle with each other? Yeah, I, I see our role internally, regardless of where you sit, becoming much more as an internal consultancy. Even if you're an, even if you're an internal L and D function, us moving to this more consultancy model than the producers, even of content, things as simple as content. In many ways, it's it's scalable, it's more accurate, and it's more relevant when we have people create it. And yes, they need our guidance, which is why, no, we don't just turn on an app and say, hey, hey, SMEs around the world, just go ahead and create content. It'll all be good. They need us there, but we don't have to have our fingers in every cookie jar for it to be effective. In fact, we're better served as that guide on the side if we want to learn, you know, use L&D terminology. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Well, totally agree. Cool, Mike. Well, this has been a great conversation. I told you we would run out of time, um, but it's it's good catching up with you as always. And uh, for once, we finally got to broadcast it live. I told you I would promise that we would do that at some point. So I appreciate and, you making the time today. I know that based on the comments, people have been very engaged in the conversation. So thank you for that. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Be sure to tag in other folks who may not have been here live. And uh, we'll we'll talk to you again in well, I'll talk to you again soon. And for those of you watching, I'll see you again later this week. Y'all take care. This is a lot of fun, Christopher. You take care. Bye-bye.